0: hello my friend i hope you and your loved ones are doing well welcome back to part three of five of a fly story barnard and columbia edition so you know we've gotten through episodes one and two right we're we're in the deep end and we are learning more and more about what a fly student is at least in our context what that experience is like and i want to heal some more. I want to dig. I want to poke. I want to go deeper because that's just something I want to do. And when considering a fly story, I think the biggest thing or one of the most prominent things that come up is this whole idea around balance. And I guess my question to you is how often did you consider yourself at equilibrium or, you know, juggling or having to like balance, a bunch of different things. Let's start with that.
1: Mhm. I think I was definitely more out of balance when I came in to school. And then now going, like reaching my senior year, I think I'm more in balance, but I'm still like, not completely, I guess. I didn't feel like I necessarily fit in my first year, like I said earlier, like I didn't find my community yet. I came in as like pre-med and like I drilled it down that like I needed to make my parents happy and like that was the only way I can make them happy by doing something that they wanted me to do professionally long-term that like would bring honor to our family, right? And like I just struggle so much because I hadn't ever taken an AP course in sciences at all and then like a whole bunch of these students had gone to like private boarding schools and they were like severely like prepped to be in the setting where like professors were like, on the first, very first day, I didn't even know that we had homework to do beforehand, like, do the reading, and it was me showing up, like, lined up, like, 10 minutes before class, and my friend was, like, not, like, a, a classmate was, like, yeah, have you done the reading, and it, I was, like, what, what reading, like, isn't today the day we go over the syllabus, like, this doesn't make sense, but then over time, like, I got used to it, and then I realized that, like, I had to actually go to therapy to realize that pre-med wasn't for me and like did, like kind of take away like stop being burdened by my mom's projection of her dream onto me. Like she was a great student at school but she had to drop out so that she could support her family like financially. Right? So like, it was me carrying on this burden from her because I had opportunities that she didn't have. And so I had to fulfill it for her. And then like junior year, I think after having let like, go of that, that expectation, I struggled with telling my family that and then, but then also being okay with like my happiness and being like, my happiness comes over like their expectations and then getting better at academics. Cause I like because I was really great at academics in high school, coming to school here and not being the best, it kind of hit my ego. And like, I, I was putting myself down because that's how, that's how my parents valued me. <laughs> like, that was how they were like, you're doing great at school. So you're amazing. Right, you're like the perfect kid, except in other other ways. Like, anyway, um, and then here I am in college making it, like making my dream come true, and yet I'm failing at it somehow. I remember just past the summer, my parents, like, there were just, we were in a fight, and my parents were like, it doesn't make sense how you didn't get a hang of it really fast, like hang of uh, college really fast. They were like, if you put enough effort, you have been fine with it. And and being like, pointing to stories about how like people are geniuses and stuff and like, equa- like comparing me to it and asking me what went wrong. So I guess in that sense, I found the balance in like keeping out my parents like judgment off me and like their expectations and their burdens that were projected onto me while also yet allowing them to like push me and motivate me because of the sacrifices they made, like saying that like, yeah, they did, they have good motivation, but behind those words but those words necessarily shouldn't directly affect me like they're not they're not thinking through it I guess yeah
0: there's a lot to unpack here and I think this narrative really sets the precedent for what's to come in this episode and then also in further episodes where there are points of contention when you are trying to balance all these different things at the same time We do a really, really good job of it sometimes. And I want to keep that in mind. I want to keep that in mind. I do want to hone in and zoom in, of course, into, you know, what makes a student here a student. And that's the classroom. And I guess my question is, what has your experience been like being in the classroom setting?
2: I think a fear I had was just not... Knowing enough, or like not being well read, or just I had this like assumption that like I was not prepared for this institution, therefore, I was not prepared for any of these discussions we're having because I did not read some theorists, um, like everyone else did, and I really, you know, like I really couldn't in that moment understand that like it's okay to not know everything and not read everything and still have a perspective that's insightful and a perspective from my identity can in some ways just be enough to add to a conversation I think a big fear of mine was just like being looked upon as not belonging, and I think like no like I think people can't look at me and identify me as fly, but I think knowing that I hold that identity like amplified how it felt, you know, and I think like it'll it made me feel like that's all that i I was, and that's all I can offer in this space and which is, like, not completely true, you know? And I think, like, since, like, it was so central to, like, my identity, or at least I felt like it was so central to my identity at that time, it really felt like everybody else felt that way, too. And, like, that, like, constant, like, well, they're going to think that I don't belong here because that's kind of the narrative that has been, like, told to me and like me messing up will in some ways reinforce that narrative you know so I feel like it did I didn't allow myself to make mistakes because I felt like I couldn't make mistakes as a fly student because I felt like there was this preconceived notion that I already don't belong here so I can't mess up because as soon as I mess up you know, in my mind, it's like, well, now they know I actually don't belong here. So, yeah.
3: I would say that, I mean, I've always had a pretty high self-image and I always felt confident about myself. I would just say that my academic voice was never as confident. Being in the academic setting I have so many stories. I have so many stories. My first semester, I took this class called First Year Writing. And then, of course, there was a workshop element to it. And I remember writing an essay when I got my paper back. My teacher didn't even grade it. She pulled me to the side and she said, hey, you don't even know how to write an essay. She said that the way how you write a thesis is not how you write a thesis. The way how you do the analysis is not how you do the analysis um, and I remember just going home and uh, well to my dorm and just crying. And I think that that's part of being FLI is lacking the resources, you know, that you need to be able to be in that, uh, quote unquote, prestigious environment and thrive in an academic setting. I remember being in class and raising my hand and, and participating. In the beginning, I would participate and then students wouldn't really um, react or comment on what I said or the teacher would kind of dismiss it I've been in class with house I I don't know if she if she's ever experienced that too but the teacher would kind of dismiss it like okay good answer good answer and then someone else would say the exact same thing but just add a couple of SAT words or or make it sound more um sexy (laughs) and then you know, they would get the glory, right? And they would say, wow, you know, that's great. Like, it's great that you said that and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I would say my academic voice is the biggest thing that I had to overcome.
4: I would say some professors, um, actually the second semester professors, um, they were, I mean, then again, they're also grad students or post-grad students. I mean, they're also professors. But, you know, like if we're talking about like actual professors, you know, who have like the chairs of like the departments and stuff, um, they tried really hard to open up narratives and conversations with us. I think they really tried like humanizing our own narratives and our own experiences. But at the same time, it wasn't the sort of, the sort of like, you know, I'm here for you. Like it, it was just like, they were not walking the talk. They were just talking. um, And, you know, it's like, It was just a really weird feeling when I went to, you know, some of my classes, and I really wanted to, you know, talk to some of these professors, and just wanted to just be like, hey, you know, I'm just really interested in taking your class, or, you know, even for the professors um, whose classes I was taking around that time, just even, like, trying to have this sort of, like, open dialogue with them, the initial open dialogue, there was this sort of, like, gatekeeping that was happening. It was, like, whether or not if you are, like, worth talking to, and... The only way that they saw like something in me was whenever I was like, I had to expose myself. I had to expose myself. I was like, you know, you know, hey, I'm a queer student. Hey, I'm a Muslim. Hey, you know, I'm this, you know, hey, I'm a you know, traumatized child, you know, because I, certain events happened to me. Is it, it, it always was a some sort of like transaction that I had to make with them. There was this professor um, whose class I was taking it and it was for, a seminar actually a grad seminar and i just sat there i was like you know i i don't know any this sort of language i do not know how to write like this you know i i feel very uncomfortable speaking this sort of manner because it reminds me of the english classes that i had to take in high school where i was being criticized because i didn't know how to write properly that my sort of like dexterity of english is not enough it's not enough to you know to be some like an eloquent student, to not be sound as like a, you know, like, you know, all these sort of like applications and sort of like, like, identity like pushes to you. It's like, I get it, Columbia is awesome. You wanna like create all these scholars, these are politicians, lawyers, doctors, yada, yada, yada. But like, I don't know, it, it, it really kind of gets me because at Rochester, you know, the professors, they, they've truly tried to open up a conversation, even the classes that involve like PhD students, seniors, juniors freshmen and sophomores like the conversation was collective it wasn't like okay I know I've majored in this sort of thing I have learned French so I'm gonna start spewing out French Latin Spanish or any sort of like very elitist like theoretical sort of frameworks to you you know it was you know it was good it was like it's very slow the process like I this is what this this is like how Toni Morrison taught this sort of framework this is how uh, gun is being used in sort of literature. It was never being thrown at you. It was being immersed into you. It's like, you know, I'm going to make you a meal. This is, these instructions of how you eat a meal, because if you never encountered that sort of, um, cultural cuisine before, like you don't want to disrespect the way how the sort of, you know, the, the food is being eaten. So you're giving instructions, but you also are being taught at the same time, because you're also giving like instructions, a written form of, of like instruction and um learning but also a visual form of instruction and learning so you are being immersed into the experience at columbia there was nothing like that um for some of my classes for my second semester yes i i, I would say that i it was it was pretty awesome to like from all my professors when i was having a rough time just when my anxiety was like really like aw- but, off the charts, or, you know, when I had somebody who passed away from um, from COVID um, somewhere close to home, you know, these professors, like, the the, the sort of, like, experience and the vibes that I was getting from my Rogers professors, those professors from my second semester classes, I, I was getting the same thing. And so, like, that's how I was able to kind of, like, kind of change the narrative, but it wasn't the narrative about Columbia at large, it was just narrative about my, those professors. Because even now, I do have some professors who are incredibly awesome, like phenomenal, and they truly care for their students. But then I also have some professors and some instructors who just, they're just like, you know, yeah, we get it, it's COVID, we're all online, but I don't care what's happening in your household. Like, there's some departments that are like, if you have three absences, you're going to get a grade reduction. Which is kind of like ridiculous, like, I'm sorry, if you want your students to major in your places, if you want students to come to you, to these sort of, you know, very outstanding um, like departments, you know, with like phenomenal instructors and all, all these sort of um, like pedagogies and all the, you know, just this beautiful cultivation that Columbia is known for, then why are you repelling the same students to begin with? Why are you pushing these students away when they really want to learn your stuff, when they really want to undertake those sort of majors. So for me, I'm still struggling with that at the moment.
0: Something that stood out to me was this idea behind a transaction that needs to happen where my trauma is transacted for your time and your resources. And based on, I mean, that's one thing that I pulled away, but I'm wondering then, when is it the right time to pull the quote unquote quote fly card? Do you even consider our experience or anything of the like to be something that you pull a card for? Not necessarily.
5: I feel like when you pull those cards, I feel like at least for professors, they don't really care. Like, either they think, like, they're, like, they pity you and they're, like, like, if you say, like, for example, like my first year in economics, a lot of people in my economics class took AP economics, right, before going in. And I felt like I was in, like, a disadvantage. But I felt like when I – I didn't tell my professor, like, I was a low-income student, but I was like, oh, my high school didn't have AP econ. And he kind of looked at me, and he was like – he didn't say it, but his face kind of gave me the expression, like, oh, like, that's why you go to private school. I also hear from, like, my other friends, like, when they tell the professors, like, they're a low-income student or they're in, like, KEOP or the Opportunity Program, the professor, like, kind of discriminates against them. And they just see, like, affirmative action, if that makes sense. Like, they're like, oh, you're not supposed to be here because you don't actually don't qualify. Like, it gives the students, like, at least that attitude or that perspective from them. And I feel like that does touch upon, like, politics and stuff like that. and um, But I feel like the financial issue, it didn't really, how do I say like, I never like pull that card, I don't really pull my fly card, unless like, it's an extracurriculars, if that makes sense. Because in extracurriculars, like if I'm advocating for fly students, obviously, I'm going to pull my card because I'm speaking from the actual like fly students perspective and not just like, hey, I heard this person say this, so that's what I think fly students want because like I'm a fly student so I know what fly students want you know what I mean um but in terms of like academics or like when I pull like finance or academic fly card that actually never happens because I kind of tell myself like that's not an excuse but there are some times where I can't afford the textbook like if it's like $200 and I know my book voucher doesn't like cover it but I feel like I should have told the professor like hey I can't afford it if that makes sense the professor just thinks like, oh, you just don't want
6: to read the textbook. I think I talk about it a lot now, especially my clubs, because I'm in some leadership positions. And I almost always make that a huge part of what I want to be for the team and what I think the team should be aware of. Because in a lot of my groups that I'm in, um, I'm like one of the only low income students. And that's really evident especially in a club sense where we're like traveling and things like that I mean the school covers like our costs for flights but even like buying dinner out like it's not feasible for me so just like being active about that and like telling my story in a way that hopefully will be productive um I don't know if that's really a a card I think I pull it sometimes for my professors but I think it's I've been trying to be gentle on myself and tell myself that that's okay because it is my reality. It's my, like, if I need an extension because I've been working multiple jobs and, like, also figuring out where I'm going to be living because my living situation is unstable because my parents don't have a place for me right now, like, then so be it. Like, that's the honest truth. But it does feel sometimes when it, I use it more than once, I'm like, Ugh, like, you think by this point I'm 19, like, and been living in this identity my whole 19 years you'd think i'd be able to get a grip but I'm, i am like can't um but yeah and i think i use it i don't use it per se but i it, it helps explain a lot of things about me that i would like have blamed on myself until like i learned more about how being fly can affect you in so many different ways in the way you grew up which affects who you are like personality-wise and yeah the same how like coming to realize like my biraciality really how that really affected who I am um, and my personality for a long long time and instead of like blaming myself for being like shy to take up space because I was in a really white school (laughs) like um, instead of blaming myself and being like damn why am I so shy I could be like okay it makes sense (laughs) I didn't want to. I didn't want to take up a ton of space because I didn't want it. People didn't want me to take up that much space. So it's like I don't know. It's interesting to think about.
7: I think that in a lot of cases, like you do have to use that um, identity as just like something that you bring forward because how can you justify? Like for example, if like did I take an art class and I need to buy three hundred dollars worth of art supplies? Like I honestly, I like don't have that money to like be doing it but like I want to do it and in certain points of your life you do have to advocate for yourself and it's I think it's more about advocacy and speaking up and being humble and sharing your story but at the same time it could be really invasive and just like why do I have to share my whole story to you like why can you just believe me like it's like there's good and bad to it I've been on both sides where like I'm like I literally cannot pay this medical bill because this is just like insane like and so like I reach out to like Barnard and I'm like can you guys help me out and then sometimes they're like yes. sometimes they're like no but in either case it's always just best to reach out it could be a saving grace but in regards to like them being like oh you have to share more about your story like you have to write this this and that I'm like For example, when Barnard was doing like the housing things like accepting applications like I literally I could not get myself to write the just like the personal statement because there was just a lot and like I mean it's it's a lot that I still I'm still trying to work on for myself, but it's also a lot that like, I'm just not comfortable sharing because I didn't know who was going to be reading it and even if I knew who was reading it I'm just not comfortable with that person because now it's on record now it's on on the files like whatever like I chose to share um like anyone could like see it like what if they're like hacked and then somebody opens it and like you know literally it could be anything but I I don't know why they like it feels like a pattern over and over where they're always asking us to do this. And I wish that there was some way that we could stop that, but I don't know. I, I, I honestly, I don't know. That's the aspect of the identity where I'm like, it really sucks. Like you really have to be so open and you have to share so much, so many details and sometimes they literally they just don't care and it, it hurts like when you feel invalidated
8: if you're being welcomed into a school and i'm being sarcastic when i use the word welcome and in your acceptance they are saying we recognize that um your your family cannot pay and i i still have my barnard acceptance and time like I'm feeling down or I feel like I don't belong here. I would actually take it out and read it because it recognizes you cannot pay. Your estimated family contribution is zero. And I'm just like, okay, thank you. But yet like they, and I, and I know that like to be low income, you are more likely to not complete college because there are just certain factors that make it a little bit more difficult to, for you to continue on with your college experience. And in accepting students, especially in programs like the opportunities programs at Barnard, you're recognizing those factors and Barnard is recognizing those factors and they are saying, we wanna help support you. We want to recognize that there's a lack of diversity at this school or there's a lack of diversity in higher education. um, And we wanna fill that gap in some way and this is a part of filling that gap is providing support to students of color to provide support for um, low income students for su- providing to- support for students who are the first in their p- family to attend college. I get a little frustrated sometimes when they ask us to fill out those forms, just because like, I mean, you know that we're like we're a Pell Grant recipients, you know, this and that, like, why is it that I have to constantly divulge traumatic instances in my family's history for you to fulfill your obligation to me. And I think that's the most frustrating part. And I look at it as something on their end, a shortcoming on their end. Because there truly are schools that just allot resources to students who are low income. And you would apply for those resources, but you wouldn't really apply. You're just saying a formally hi this is what i need from you because i am a part of this program and that's it and i think that's a very different approach which i think i guess barnard is trying to take with access barnard i'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt but like i there's there's just only so much room to give so yeah i i never even look at it as we're taking from the school cuz truly like if they didn't want us to come here then they should not have accepted low income students they should have been a we a need aware institution and I could have taken my ass right to a CUNY. Let's be clear.
0: What's being brought up here, I think, is a question of, or a question that could be directed to admin, right? At least that's what I'm hearing. So I wonder then, what are some ways in which admin or the powers beyond us as students has like affected your experience? And maybe even what are some suggestions, right?
5: Yeah, just like last year when I was working in, um, as VP Finance, obviously I had a lot more control regarding like club finances. And I had that connection where I was meeting regularly with the CEO and stuff like that, which is chief operating officer. So he's in charge of finances. And I noticed like certain times I would tell them, they're like, oh yeah, I want to hear like student feedback. Buy- please tell me. So I would tell them the student feedback of what students want. And they would be kind of like making excuses saying like, Oh, are you sure? Because um, from our perspective, it's actually like this. But I think like I what I said was very logical, because later on, like they were speechless by the end of the meeting. And the VP finance was like, very like, against what I was saying. So she kept like, kind of like, making excuses of why like students shouldn't have the support that they needed and at the end like after I keep pushing back I was like no like I understand where you're coming from but the evidence shows that it's like this and then at the end of the meeting the CO um the former CO um I think his name was Robert he was like oh okay we'll get those fixed you know so like you really need to hold like those people accountable and also show like okay I agree with your side but I also have proof that that's not working effectively, and you're gonna save a lot more money in the long run. Because um, in SGA meetings, something very interesting is the school keeps saying that they're not getting enough alumni donations. But the truth is, if you're not providing alumni with the things that you promise that you are gonna provide us, like all the resources and stuff like that, if we're not happy during our undergraduate experience here, we're not gonna donate money when we graduate, <laughs> and statistics literally show that low income students who go to private schools, who actually enjoy their experiences here and feel supported, they're more likely than like wealthier um, alumni to like donate more money to the school, if that makes sense.
9: And I've been thinking about that a lot just because I think, especially when it comes to student advocacy, I, I do see a lot of students putting a lot of mental strain on themselves to just change the school to like do a lot of free labor for the school and then I'm like why like why do we have to do it and it's like really like <laughs> I have friends who literally have to go to therapy because of this like and I mean other things too but like this is like definitely something like I also talk about a therapy because it's traumatizing to go to a professor and like totally get to dismissed about like their problematic behavior when you like stand up to them finally because I think like also just standing up to them in the first place is difficult um, and then once you do it and then getting dismissed is like It's heartbreaking. I feel like there's always going to be someone to fight this fight and like to try to improve the school. I pray that there's always going to be someone at least. And I don't think it's okay for us as individuals to overburden ourselves with it and like try to like, I don't know, I guess like feel like we're the only ones who could do it and like not feel like we can't take a step back. Because, like, taking a step back from something is, like, feels so, so great. I've done it before. I'm like, wow, Uh, I'm never going back. And, you know, it's, like, a really empowering feeling. And I think it's okay to, like, say it's, like, you need a break. And someone else could do it. Someone else could take a step up and speak up and, like, you know, or maybe just, like, tell administrators and be, like, this is your job at the end of the day. Like, figure it out. So, yeah, I guess, like, that's what I would say. I think it's, like, knowing that there's always going to be someone to fight this battle and not feel like us as individuals is going to make like a damaging impact, you know, and like put that weight on our
1: shoulders because that's not fair to like any of us. It's been four years, right? I definitely had a different picture of what Barnard would be like. I'm not saying that like, I don't love this school. I think I, I I do, like, I'm not going to say after I graduate, like, I won't come back to see my peers or something. the the community that I built here but I think there are so many flaws of Barnard that I didn't see beforehand that I see now that like having been through it as a student obviously I think it's the same for everyone because you see it as an outsider and you're like everything that's thrown at you is just like positives like oh it's New York City it's like a great like historically women's college that thinks about like being progressive or something like that. And then you get here and you realize that like not everything's just like perfect. I don't wanna say that Barnard didn't help me. There are so many like traumas that I had that I was carrying on from my childhood by being an immigrant, by being like the oldest sister in the family, like so many things that I went through that Barnard didn't help me like see in a different light and like help move on, like figure it out kind of be okay with myself I guess but there are also things where Barnard traumatized me on like (laughs) there are stories that I will carry on from this that I'm just like I will never forget I was talking to my friend the other day about this like how like there are things that I've never experienced before that I had to like come here to like experience and then leave so like going on forward I don't think I'm gonna I'm not going ahead with this i idealized version that I came in with.
0: I want to say thank you once again for tuning in and listening to part three of five of a fly story. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to email me eight sweetchats at gmail dot com or you can DM me on Instagram at eight sweet chats. Follow along their story continues there. The audio portion is just one part of the entire project and I'm looking forward to hearing more of where this journey is taking us in parts four and five so stay tuned and I look forward to chatting with you later peace